All right, everybody, welcome into the Salt City Hoops podcast. I have a feeling that this will be an excellent podcast. Oh, did you see what I did there? Oh, man. I know. The creativity we bring here. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I actually like that. As you pointed out, uh, Trevor, or sorry, uh, David, um, that's one of the jazz pregame classics is, is tonight's going to be a good night. I once created a Spotify playlist of all the music they play at jazz games. Nice. And um, that was obviously well featured along with Club Can't Handle Me Right Now. And, um, <laughs> you know, We Will Rock You. All the all the classics. As long as there's not too much Pitbull, it's fine <laughs> with me. Uh, luckily, I think this was before the Pitbull era. Good Lord. That Is that an era? Every song. Like, <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, that's okay. This is not what we planned on talking about today. But I, I, I did do a podcast once with Clark about all the jazz in arena music. And anyway, um, that's still in the SLC Dunk Salt City Hoops archive somewhere. Go listen to it if you're in an in, inner game arena music fan. But today we want to talk about the FIBA World Cup because um, there have been a lot of jazz guys doing well. Obviously, we're fans of Team USA Basketball, so we want to talk about that. Uh, and throughout the show, we'll kind of talk about the jazz guys as well. So we've got Rudy Gobert, Dante Exum, uh, Raul Neto, and Ante Tomic to talk about. Uh, we're actually going to leave Rudy Gobert for, for the end just because I think we want to save the best for last a little bit because of how impressively he's played in this tournament. So, um, But before we get into that, let's talk about Team USA for a few minutes. And in particular, I, I want to get your thoughts first on how good this Team USA really is. Because uh, first of all, they don't seem all that impressive on the floor. And then they're winning games by at least 20 points every game. Yeah. I... <laughs> I think it's a really interesting question and in that the, the answer honestly could be that there's a chance we're not going to get a chance to find out. Um, and, the, you know, whether or not you believed that Spain was going to beat them or was going to be favorites, that's that's not really a thing anymore. And, you know, for as well as, as France played and, and as well as Rudy Gobert played specifically, which we'll talk about and things like that, it's hard to see them challenging the United States, especially in terms of the guard rotation and things like that. They're just going to be giving up so much. Uh, in terms of the talent advantage, that if they even make it to the finals, that is, they still have to beat what is right. it, Serbia today, right? Yeah. Um, I think that if you were to assess it in a vacuum, I think this is, uh, and I hope I'm not making too many waves by saying something like this. I think this is almost unquestionably the worst team USA since '06. Um, part of that is just natural circumstance. You know, a lot of guys were not involved for this tournament. I think a, a lot a lot more than people recognize would be the norm. Like, even, you know, we go back to the last FIBA when it wasn't the World Cup, when it was the, the World Championship of Basketball, and it wasn't, well, people they weren't trying to make it into as big of a deal as the as they're kind of trying to brand this into the the largest international tournament now. And I think Team USA was a lot more well stocked last time around, uh, having Durant especially, um, and and just in general, if you look at the that roster and where players were in the league at the time, and then you look at this one plus all the dropouts kind of right beforehand, the Paul George injury, Kevin Durant dropping out, Kevin Love, all those guys. I think that the pickings were a little bit slim and you can there's a lot of criticism to potentially be had about the way the roster was built guys like Mason Plumley being on it um which I, I think are interesting but at the same time I don't think they had as much to work with as they have in yeah, the past. No, I think that's reasonable. Just a quick correction. So the USA won their semifinal game so they are in the final. No, the U, I was saying for uh, Oh, okay. For France. France or Serbia. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Um and that's yeah, S Serbia. So you're right on. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and I think, so first of all, on the Plumlee th thing, I think that's just Coach K trying to keep up with Calipari a little bit and say, you know, if you, I've got, Calipari's got the NBA pipeline now, um, I, I feel like Coach K is trying to build a USA basketball pipeline almost with that move. Yeah, which is interesting to me. I've been a longtime Coach K supporter for some strange reason. I've always enjoyed Duke. I really have no connection to them whatsoever, but I've just always... You're just a frontrunner. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> honestly, when I was a kid, I totally was, actually. Like, it's, I'm not. I'm like a little ashamed to admit it, but I totally was when I was a kid. Um, And I didn't have a college basketball Ooh. team, and Duke always won stuff, and so I, you know, uh, and I really liked Shane Battier when I was a kid and everything like okay. that. Um, and so I've always really respected Coach K, and he's had a ton of respect, and this is the, you know, this is one of the first times you ever really hear much criticism of him at all it's pretty rare to hear in general he's one of those figures mm -hmm. and i don't know if all of it is necessarily justified but i think there are certain pieces that really could could be 
Uh, the Plumley thing is one. There have been certain, you know, again, they may not ever come back to bite the team. The the but some of the roster decisions I thought were interesting. Um, I really thought a guy like Paul Millsap could could really help this team quite a bit in terms of the way that you know they don't have a whole lot of the the offense has bogged down at times when they've got that Farid and Davis combo out there as the bigs because neither of those, I mean Davis is developing his range but neither of them can shoot as consistently as someone like a Millsap could at that four position um right. and Farid especially and again we may not ever see that get exposed by anybody because well, the talent advantage has just been so massive and will probably can and we should continue that way and so here's my thought as I watch that France for Spain force fourth quarter um is that if rudy gobert is shutting down pau gasol and mark and serge and uh, and you know the the vaunted spain front line how would anthony davis do against mm-hmm. them right you know I, I think anthony davis we'd all agree is is several steps above rudy gobert uh, on both ends of the court I, I think Spain would similarly just struggle with with that length as well, right? Yeah, and you know we we saw actually we saw France was was going pseudo small a lot of that game. Rudy was essentially the only real big a lot of the time, and then they have Diaw or uh, uh, Pietrus, uh They would have at the four uh, for a significant period of time during that game as well, and that was with with the two big Spain lineup out there pretty much that whole time. They didn't get they gave up fifty two points in a full game. And the U.S. is unquestionably more talented. Like Anthony Davis, sorry to Rudy Gobert fans, but Anthony Davis is a little bit better than him, and <laughs> just a little. And uh, you, you know, I and it's it's really hard now because we get into did Spain just have like a really bad game, like an aberration of a really bad game, or did they really get something thrown at them that they totally weren't ready for defensively? I think some of it's luck, right? Like that they went two for 22 on threes. Yeah. Even even if they're all really well-guarded threes, you'd still almost expect them to hit more than that yeah. 10, 11%, whatever that is. Um, 9%, actually, if I do my math correctly. Yeah. Um, but then if... You, I also think it's kind of a one of these small lineup versus big lineup things that we keep seeing happening in the NBA a little bit is we see that when small lineups match up against these big lineups, even if the big lineup has more talent, sometimes the small lineup just does better because there's more spacing uh, and the big lineup finds it hard to score with even just one big man down low. Yeah, and you know there can be some more variability, introduce a little bit more variability when you're shooting more threes and spacing the floor more and things like that, and if in that small sample size of one game, which is what the FIBA, you know, every, the comp, Fran Fraschilla seems to mention it like every three minutes, how the, this is only one game. And a lot of these guys, especially the guys who've been in the NBA, they're used to these, they're used to, you know, three, five, seven game series right. where they had the talent advantage has time to show itself over the entire period of the series. This is one game. If a team gets real hot, like a team that, especially a team like France, that's going to be spacing a lot more, shooting probably more threes and things like that. Whereas their opponent, like we said, goes really cold. All of a sudden, you can have that kind of a result right there. Who's to say whether or not that same sort of thing might have happened against the United States? Maybe they would have been galvanized in a different way against the U.S. Um, maybe they would have gone really hard at Fareed specifically because I didn't see Spain attempting to it when they did when France did have Gobert out there as the only big. I didn't see Spain trying to go at that second person, whether it was Beatrice or uh, or or Diaw. Yeah. I didn't really see them trying to attack those matchups really heavily. Maybe they wouldn't have against the United States. Maybe the U.S. would have found it similarly easier sledding than they thought because Davis could match up with the with with Powell and they weren't really feeding Mark all that much, which I found really. They were trying to go like a kind of a high-low thing, and then when Rudy was shutting it down for the low guy, they weren't really changing things up, which I found strange. I found a few elements of, of Spain's strategy in that game a little bit strange. Well, I think that's fair. I mean, they only scored 52 points. That's the lowest total of any team in the knockout stages. Um, that's not good for what I don't know if they're the favorites, obviously. I think Team USA was and is still the favorite, but for the second best team in the tournament with that much NBA talent to score 52 points in 40 minutes is is unheard of. And more specifically, even with with how the amount of experience those guys have both together and on this stage specifically. I mean, they it's another thing Fran Fischel liked to talk about as frequently as he could is how how Spain is like a the this Spanish national team is like a brotherhood. They've played with each other for, you know, for multiple years. They've come up through the ranks together in general. Some of them continue to play together in Spain still. Uh even NBA quality players like Sergio Rodriguez and guys like that. Um I, I found it interesting, and I, I found sort of some of their secondary, their lack of secondary stuff, I should say, interesting. 
they were, you know, they were getting their first option shut down sometimes by Rudy or sometimes by other uh, elements of France's defense, and they just didn't really appear to know what to do. They See, they weren't going into their secondary stuff. And that's the thing where, like, ideally, this I quote unquote brotherhood of Spain idea would help you, right? Like, you yeah. would be able to go past the first option, go past the fact that you've trained more than these other teams together. Um, and, and find each other and, and have that team chemistry to have a second or third option and understand how guys work and you know where they want the ball, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and that wasn't the case. And I think it is a failure of coaching. But a, a little bit, yeah, and uh, you know, and, get, and taking it sort of back to the United States, it is in a sense a little unfortunate. And and to me, I really, I actually do, I see it as hmm. slightly unfortunate that you that the U.S. isn't going to get to face that Spain team and at least see if somebody could have exposed some of their warts in terms of the the roster building and things like that. Because I just don't think France or Serbia has the the and we've we've seen it the u.s kind of just in either in the second quarter or the third quarter has been the trend lately mostly the second quarter i think where they kind of just are like oh okay we should probably win this game now and they start running really hard and everything and there's there's (laughs) they they can't the other teams can't compete with the athleticism they're getting they're getting rebounds and getting out on the break and things like that and they're just making the talent and athleticism advantage too large to, to to get over that hump which I think Spain maybe could have challenged them a little bit more, even if we did see a, a real major down game from them there. No, I think that's fair. I mean, we've kind of seen it with the Miami Heat in the last few years, is that during the regular season, I feel like Miami has the opportunity to get out and run. But then in the playoffs, the game's bogged down a little bit. And I, and I think they run into a little bit of trouble with that just because um, they don't have the crazy athleticism, athleticism advantage in the open court. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's hurt them, say, against Dallas in 2010 and um, against San Antonio last year. Yeah, yeah, and I think the U.S. just, they, you know, talent is a lot more equal in the NBA. That's why the Heat have found those kind of problems, and the, the USA just hasn't run into them yet. Like you said, yeah, we've been, you know, oh, they played a really crappy game today, but they won by like 35. That's, yeah. you know, that <laughs> seems to be the norm for this tournament pretty much so far. Is that they're, And one part of that, actually, that I do want to mention, uh, I know we're going to have Dan on soon, and we're going to probably uh, get into the jazz stuff from FIBA as well. Uh, I think the defense, actually, for Team USA has been slightly underrated. Um, okay. th- I think they've played some really good defense in this tournament. Because there's been a lot of talk about like James Harden with no D and you know all these other things and but I I think you're right and I think a lot of it is because Anthony Davis is who he is. Oh, he's incredible. Um, he's, he's amazing. Yeah, I, I really think that he's a top five NBA player next year. I think he may have already been at the end of last season. Actually, yeah. there's there's almost if especially if the kind of the mid range game that he's been flashing bits of in this FIBA continues. Um, and he was doing that last year a little bit as well. Um. If that can, can continues at a consistent rate, it's hard to see him not be. He's just the impact he has on the game while he's on the court defensively is just. There's all I don't. I don't know that there's another player currently who's having more. Maybe, maybe Hibbert or I don't. I don't think not. so. No, yeah, yeah, I I really don't. I think he's he's the guy. He's probably my pick for defensive player of the year next year. But yeah. So I I distracted you from your defensive point with Anthony Davis gushing. But <laughs> what? What else with Team USA's defense is working? Um, I, I think a lot of the, the team scheme in general does appear to be working. I think they know that they've got the athleticism advantage on, on the wings against everybody, obviously, and they're uh, they haven't done anything especially complex. And like you say, you know, there's been Harden hasn't been good or anything like that. I actually think there's a chance he's been slightly better than he is in the NBA. The the major you know easily YouTubeable stuff aside, he's had several plays in this tournament that have just been like, oh my god, face palm. <laughs> Like, you know, really, really bad. But I actually think his average level of of effort has maybe been the slightest bit higher. No, I think the effort is higher. But I I think, was it uh, Zach Lowe who pointed this out, that even if the effort's higher, then the output is still not average defensively. Like, even when James Harden tries, I don't know that he's an average NBA defender. And I think he was, I think Zach was also making that point for for, uh, Steph Curry and for for Kyrie Irving Yeah, you're right. That if, you know, those, and those guys have, to their credit, uh, especially Kyrie, uh, they have been, you've you've seen the effort from them. Kyrie's been getting low on all of his defensive possessions. He's been, you know, really working to get over screens. You can tell he's been trying to put in the effort because he knows people are looking at him for that this year. And 
Zach's kind of right though. There's a there's a <laughs> there's a limit to which they can they can reach in that. And that's the thing is sometimes I feel like they're over hustling, right? They're reaching and you know they they end up like fouling guys four yeah. or five times almost before it's called just because they're trying to get their hand in the honey bucket a little bit and, and yeah. take the ball away. That's just a foul on any level. And that's kind of what's nuts about it is that they've been doing. There's been a ton of unnecessary reaching. Like Curry had four fouls yesterday, all four of which were just ridiculous reaches that he that you should never ever be making. Like really bad fouls, mm-hmm. honestly. And they still, they've been having a lot of that in throughout the tournament, and they're still holding these teams to these these really low numbers defensively. And if they can do that with, it seems like they're still, even this many games in, still kind of a little bit struggling with some of the FIBA specifics in terms of the way the rules are called. Like, I think those kind of touch, swiping a guy as he runs past you type of thing is called more consistently in FIBA than it is in the, in the, yeah, in the NBA. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, even with all that stuff, they're still shutting down everybody. They're still hardly being challenged at all. Imagine what would happen if they were used to playing on this stage and if you know if they were used to that sort of thing and whatnot. I think it would be – there's a chance they would even be a little bit more dominant on that end, and I think that's one area that we may – if when we look back on this team, which I'm sure we – I think looking back on this team is going to be really interesting because there's going to be the cynical crowd that's going to be like, oh, they would have lost to Spain – and and then there's going to be the the other crowd that's going to be like, well, look at how Spain played against France. We would have crushed them. That sort yeah. of thing. And but I think that I think the the way that they've done the job they've done defensively, I think Fareed deserves a little bit of credit there. He's you know he does he does have the athletic advantage here that he's not always going to have in the NBA and things like that. Well, he does against a lot of guys, but he's he's played really well defensively. I've thought he's yeah been, he surprised me. He's been good on the boards. He's been uh, been a bit of a rim protector. Um, I think they they deserve some credit there. Yeah, no, I, I think that's accurate. So Dan Clayton is calling in soon, I'm told. Um, so he'll be talking to us. He wrote a great uh, series of scouting reports on both Salt City Hoops and ESPN700.com uh, about uh, Rudy Gobert, Raul Neto, Dante Exum, and Ante Tomic's games thus far in FIBA play. Um, do you want to get into one of those guys while we wait for Dan? Let's. Yeah, we should. Uh, you want to do Exum or Neto uh, sure. first? Um well- or we could do Tomich if we wanted to. Just okay, sure. Let's let's just start with Tomich because I, I then we can talk with Dan about uh, the the big three Jazz guys, the ones who are currently in a Jazz uniform. First of all, I, I want to say this: I, I don't think Ante Tomich is ever coming over to the NBA. No. Um, and it's sad because he does show flashes of dominance in these in these European games that you could see him translating that into the NBA. That being said, I, I think he likes it over there. I think he likes getting... He would probably end up getting a larger salary in Europe than he would in the NBA. Almost certainly. Um, especially because their salaries are post-tax, not pre-tax. So, you know, that helps a lot, obviously. Yep. And um, that being said, I, I think it's interesting in kind of a conceptual way how Anti-Tumich has played. Do you think, first of all, that he would be a productive rotation member in the NBA? Oh, man. Stuff... It's so hard to say. Um <laughs> It's for me the hardest part to say is whether he'd be able to rebound in the NBA. Um, hmm. I, 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 I think uh, it is it is really tough to say. And I like you're saying I don't know that we're ever going to get the opportunity. Uh, yeah. To see. In fact, I, I think there's almost no chance. He's been on the been we had the draft rights for six years now. I don't know that it's happening. But uh, I'm worried about his. I'm worried about the rebounding, and I'm worried about whether he he would be able to translate to the speed of the of the NBA game. That's fair because it is kind of a below the basket, slower moving game for Ante Tomic. Dan, are you there? Hey guys, how you doing? Good. So we're we're talking about Tomic and then kind of going saving the best for last in Rudy Gobert, if you will. Um, so <laughs> we introduced your piece already. Um, wanted to get your thoughts on Tomic first before we move on to the three big guys. Yeah, well, I, I just caught the tail end of what uh, Ben said there. I, I agree with that assessment. I, and look, I mean. People that know the NBA and that and that have watched so much in the ACB and around Europe all talk about him like he's someone who projects to be a third or fourth big. He's not going to be a starting NBA center. He's not going to be an all-star. Uh, I think he could be a nice utility player off the bench in the mold of like a... Uh, his game doesn't exactly translate to Luis Escola, but if you think about someone who... Um, or Fabrizio Alberto, you know, older rookies who came with kind of an established... Um, post-presence, more of a finesse game. I think he could do that, but I agree with Ben's assessment that after six years, you're starting to wonder if the Jazz and and he have mutual interest in making that happen in Utah. We'll see. Yeah, and I, I think from just kind of a 
what I know, the little I know about this from an insider perspective, I, I think the Jazz have tried to in the past, in kind of the years between his European contracts, um, obviously you can't bring him over. Uh, you could pay the large buyout on his big European contracts, but it probably won't work for the Jazz salary cap-wise. Um, and it's just something I don't think that he wants to do. It doesn't make sense for him financially. It doesn't make sense for him probably talent-wise. It, he, I, it sounds like he f- prefers being the bigger fish in a small pond, so to speak. Yeah, potentially. And and look, I mean, you know, the years that it might have made a lot of sense for him, it hasn't made sense for the Jazz because, you know, you're talking about some of those years where the Jazz were look, looking at a big log jam up front with Al Jefferson, Paul Millsap, and his canter Derek Favors. So, you know, I think some of it's just hokey, you know, bad timing. But uh, but we'll see. At, at the very least, I think the the better he plays internationally, the the better likelihood that the Jazz can at some point get something out of that or 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 maybe it's not a great standalone asset but maybe that can sweeten the deal and get you some get something done in the trade market so uh we'll we'll see what happens with Tomich the basketball player as well as Tomich the uh trade asset yeah. do, do you think he even is enough of an asset at this point that anybody would give anything of even remote value for him or is he just like a a small small piece on the back of a trade to like sort of even the values out type of thing Oh no! I, th- I think the NBA community knows who he is. I, I do think he would be. I don't think he'd ever be the the first name listed on a tra- on a trade deal yeah. for sure. Um, but I mean, you know, the guy's still in his mid twenties. Um, he's a proven scorer. He's got a great touch around the basket. He's got elite passing skills for a big man. Um, so I, you know, absolutely, I think that he could he could be someone that twenty nine other teams would have some level of interest in. But to your point, it's it's never going to be. You know, no GM dreams of telling his fan base like, "Oh, we got Ante Helmets." You know, I, I, yeah. I think we'd have to temper it a little. I think great moments in Jazz press release history were when um, the Jazz traded away Matt Harpering and Eric Maynard for Peter Fesse and the you know the cap space that came along with him. But that that press release did say something like, "Jazz acquired German forward Peter Fess or however you say his name, <laughs> and it was it was kind of hilarious. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've actually been, you know, it's too bad that Fest didn't play in, uh, well, Germany didn't make the World Cup, did they? So, you know, it'd it'd be great if, like, we could also keep track of of his draft rights and what he was producing. He's officially retired now. Oh, that's right. Uh, Yeah. Darn it. I know it is. <laughs> it is a shame, but he he almost he wasn't really contributing at any level when the Jazz traded for him. So a- anyway, yeah. let's move on to another Jazz prospect draft right guy, Raul Neto. Um, how do you feel about his play so far this tournament? Well, you know, I gotta tell you, I I was I was a little surprised to hear how people were talking about him, especially three or four games in, and they, you know people would would watch a stretch where he admittedly, you know, took good control of the ball and, and executed the offense well, but, but had, you know, fairly quiet games and people were talking like, Oh, Raul Neto might be the best jazz point guard prospect. And, and, you know, then he had a, a nice game against the crappy Egyptian team. And then he had his really great game against Argentina, which, you know, should excite us every bit as much as Rudy Gobert's game against France. He, he was excellent against Argentina. And and then you know the the over the top love starts to make a little bit of sense, but I still think we should take Raúl's overall World Cup performance, you know, into perspective because he had games where he was, you know, really quiet. He's poised, he's composed, uh, he he has a good feel for the game, but you know, I, I think uh, you probably have it up. I I think he averaged you know five points and two assists or something like that. Yeah, 7.6 points. Yeah, 7.6 points, 2.3 assists. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I'm excited. I liked what I saw, too. Um, but, you know, three straight games with two points in, in each outing. And, and then, you know, and then all of a sudden he, he gets rich off of Egypt's bad defense, you know. I, yeah. I, I just think there should be a little bit of perspective there. But I, but I am excited, um, although, and I mentioned this in the piece, you know, whatever he means to the Jazz's future is is really going to be a function of what Dante Exum and Trey Burke and even Alec Burks and Gordon Hayward mean to the Jazz's future because we just named four pretty good backcourt players right there. So um, unless some of those guys aren't part of the long-term plans, I'm I'm not sure how much a part of the plan Raul can be. 
Yeah, I had another stat actually that for a little to along the lines of sort of tempering our our expectations before we get a little bit too far ahead of ourselves, and that was uh, we're going to talk about Exum in just a minute. And Exum has taken he's kind of been on the other side. Everybody everybody's been kind of worried about how little he's been able to perform in the uh, other than that one game that Australia may or may not have thrown intentionally and all these <laughs> things, um, but. If you actually break down their tournament numbers for this tournament and you go by per 36 minutes or per 40, whatever you want to do, per a per minute stat, uh, Exum is averaging more assists per minute than Neto is. And that's despite having what people have perceived as a really terrible tournament, while Neto has had what I think people have perceived as a really, really excellent tournament. That's not to say that Exum's having the better tournament. There's obviously more to it than how many assists you have. But... Uh, I, I do kind of agree with the majority of what you're saying, Dan. I've, I've found it a little, maybe a lot, actually, uh, of, a, of a case of people getting a little too far ahead of themselves. Uh, I, I think gauging from a couple of games, and, and yes, the Argentina, he played really, really well in that Argentina game. That's tough competition. Maybe they're not like, maybe they're not Spain, so not maybe not the same level as, as Rudy's competition in that game, but he, he played really well. That said... Taking that little, little tiny bits of evidence like that, and and Egypt is you're being nice when you call their defense bad, like it's <laughs> it's it's awful. And taking that to say this is an NBA starting level point guard, I think is a fairly huge reach. Honestly, not that he couldn't be, but I think right now, you know, honestly, you know, the guy shot like seventy two percent as a free throw shooter last year. It's not a very good free throw shooter, that and that's down from the year before. As are pretty much all of his shooting numbers last year. His three point shooting went down, and this is. I'm talking in Europe, not just uh, not FIBA. I think that he's actually still potentially got several steps to go before we can consider him as an NBA level type of guy. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, Argentina is is legit, and at the end of the day, there aren't that many players who can against a high level competition like that take over a quarter the way Raul took over the fourth quarter against Argentina. So I don't want to take anything away from him, but. Um, in terms of a prospect and in terms of looking at their ceilings, I, I think the I think the Jazz are a lot more married to uh, the next kid we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, let's let's go ahead and move on to Dante. Are you as worried as as I think a lot of people are about his low minute totals, the low points? He's averaging two point seven points and two assists per game. <laughs> uh, short answer: No. Okay. Um, I mean, I, you know, I watched every single minute that Dante Exum played um, at the World Cup, which, by the way, takes about as long as watching a few episodes of your favorite sitcom on Netflix. <laughs> so not, not a huge number of minutes. Um, the reason I chuckle and the reason I'm not super concerned is I think that the second his plane lands at Salt Lake City International, he's going to be much more of a focus than he ever was for Andre Lamanis the Australian coach. Um, first, first of all, and, and I mean, I don't, I don't follow boomer basketball, so this is going to be a borderline uneducated comment. And I, and I apologize in advance if this is going to offend anybody, but I'm not, I wasn't terribly impressed with the sets that Australia had. I think most of their offensive action was pretty non-creative, was pretty uncreative. Um, and, and in fact, you know, really nobody moves except, you know, like most of it's kind of a two-man game type of type of system, and then you've got three guys just kind of standing around. and And not only do I think that's not very satisfying basketball, but I don't think that suits Dante's strength. So they really played him. They played him a lot as a spot shooter, and that's and that's not what he's good at. That's not what his strength is now, or maybe even ever. Um, so I, I mean, it's kind of like if. I don't know. This is, this is a bad metaphor, but it's it's kind of like if Derek Favors made the national team and was asked to run point guard and didn't do a very good job and didn't get a lot of minutes. Like that's just it's just not what Derek Favors does, and and that's not what Dante Exum does. And and more to the point, um, you know, I like the way Kevin Pelton approaches this stuff because he basically says. You know, we shouldn't throw away any information that helps us make a. a projection but we should look at it all in context right and so the fact that he scored you know a bucket a game in international competition should should maybe reinforce some of the same questions we've been asking about this kid since draft night but if you look at other historical precedents 
a bad FIBA or even a bad rookie year doesn't doesn't mean you can't later ascend to greatness and crack the code. So so I'm not I'm not worried about Dante, but this just reminds us how raw he is. Sorry, that was that was a long answer. Oh no, that's I think you touched on the part. The biggest part to me is that yeah, we you know. This is a guy who you have you have to keep in mind. He, yes, he's 19 years old, and we knew. Th- I don't think we've seen anything in this tournament that is that is new information to us. I think we knew that the uh, adjusting to the level of basketball that he's going to be having to play at was going to be one of the largest factors for Exum, and that it may take a while. You have to think about. The way this guy's, you know, imagine, think back, listeners, and ourselves as well, to, to when you were 19 years old. And think about if you have a, a thing you've Wasn't been... Wasn't that like yesterday for you, Ben? I'm 26, thank you very much. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, but think to, think to if you've been doing things one way for those those whole 19 years. Dante Exum's been playing basketball for however long he's been playing, and I would imagine that at least since he was 12 years old or pro- possibly even younger, there's never been a basketball court that he's touched where he has not been the dominant player on that basketball court. Like, where he hasn't been the focus, generally. Uh, there may be a couple exceptions to that if you go back. I mean, Summer League. Yeah, the Summer, the summer League might be one of the only examples. But even there, I think he I think he had a far larger role in the Summer League than the than he's had with this Australia team. No, I think that's fair. So I, I guess my I would interject and say, if he's going to be playing a little bit off the ball with Trey Burke this year, does that work for Dante Exum right now? Uh, maybe not this second, but I I just think that we need to temper a little bit how quickly we expect him to make these adjustments. That's I right. I, th- I think that it you know it might take this whole season. It might take this whole season plus this summer league next year and the start of next season. I don't think I think folks should be prepared for that, and I don't think that that's a bad thing if that's what happens. There have been very very few prospects on Exum's level of rawness at his position. I would say. Um, I agree. Sorry, go ahead, Dan. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I was just going to say I agree, but I also think that some of the things that right now he's struggling or, or some of the ways that he's invisible, I think he can learn pretty quickly from a coaching staff where, let's be honest, he's going to be one of the focal points of the development conversations. Yeah. You know, Lamanis's job for the last month has not been to develop Dante Axum. And I think everybody knows that you know, the first or second bullet of Quinn Snyder's job description when he posted for that position was, you know, make players like Dante Exum special. So I think he'll be more of a priority. Um, there are a lot of developmental areas that I would say are pretty low-hanging fruit. The way, he, the way he responds to screens on defense, the way he uses screens on offense, those are things that he can spend some time in the video room with Quinn and, and, and Brad and the others and I think I think there are some areas where we'll see some pretty quick gains. Those not areas that'll make him an all star by you know November fifteenth, but areas that I you know I I think I think Dante X the Jazz will be able to put Dante Exum on the floor with confidence. I think by October twenty ninth or whenever the season starts. Yeah, and I I think that's a big step, but given that Australia hasn't really put him on the floor with confidence, I guess. Anyway. Um, yeah. No, because, I, I, they're tr- because they're trying to play him as a shooter, and that's not what he is. Right, yeah. And they have plenty of point guard talent. They, you know, with Matthew Della Vadova and everyone else, you know, they, they don't need Dante Exum's level of talent at his position right now. Anyway, let's let's move on to the big story. I think of FIBA thus far, and to the point where we all scrambled to write awesome articles on it that you can check out on SaltCityHoops.com, um, and why this is like the meeting of the minds a little bit. Rudy Gobert, let's talk about first his France game. How, what did he do well in that game? Why was everybody so excited? Rudy Gobert. <laughs> well, because he played defense solidly. Uh, I think last year, and, and granted, you know, when we talk about sample size, you know, he played fewer than 500 minutes last year. But in those 500 minutes, he had stretches where he was defensively sensational, and he had stretches where he tried too hard or, you know, played out a system or, you know, Corbin and the then coaches couldn't couldn't trust him to do what the rest of the team was expecting him to do. So I, I think that was what stood out to me is that, you know, 
he was playing really good defense, but he wasn't biting every pump fake. He wasn't running guys off the three-point line. He was he was playing within himself. He was playing within the I, I don't know France's system per se, but but based on the movement and and the action, I, I, it looked like he was doing the right thing and what his teammates expected him to be doing. And then the fact that, as I referenced in in my post on him, you know, he also was moving off the ball a lot better than we ever saw last year in his 400 and whatever minutes. He he seems to be gaining an understanding of where he needs to be so that he's not just standing around and forcing the Jazz to play four on, or, or France in this case, to play four on five when they're on the offensive end of the floor. Um, I don't know if that's consistent with what you guys saw. I wrote it first. <laughs> now, I, I, that's a bit of a no, but I, I did also include that in my post, and it's it's hard not to see if you're watching the game really closely. And I, I think Dan just Dan did just touch on to me that probably the two largest positive elements and the elements that if again it was one game, and I'm not sure that he played quite that well for the rest of the tournament. I, I watched the majority of France's other games, and I've gone back and looked at it now. I'm I'm not sure whether that was an aberration. We still have to leave that as a possibility that it was just like he he was, you know, inhabited by the spirit of Akeem Olajuwon or something like that for that one <laughs> game. But if we continue to see those sort of things, um, the the improvement in that in that game that we were watching on those two things that Dan just noted the the playing within himself defensively and and sort of allowing the game to come to him more rather than trying to force it himself given the the skills that he's got and everything and especially the way that he was able to move off the ball on offense and the way he's started to interact with his teammates and started to understand where he needs to be on the court so that his limitations offensively aren't limiting the offense like that he's not clogging driving lanes for people he's not uh, he's not getting in the way and clogging up the spacing and things like that. I think there's hu- huge, huge developments for him, and it. And if he can continue those on the NBA level, the he's got the physique and the and the you know he's going to have to fill out, but he's he's got the the NBA level physical profile. And the fact that his mental game is coming along as quickly as it is, I think, is what is probably the chief. Uh, area of encouragement. Now you were Dan. You were you were talking about not biting too often on pump fakes and things like that. And I do think going forward that that sort of realm and going down that line is going to be his largest concern for the tournament. He averaged just short of six fouls per thirty six minutes for the for the yeah. entire tournament, and he's been fouling. And that was an issue last year. Generally, was how much he fouled. I think going forward, that's going to be one of the big things, especially with his relative lack of of bulk when he gets into the NBA and there's big guys who can not only give him those up and unders and and get him in the air potentially, but can also muscle him a little bit is how he responds to that and whether he can do it on a consistent basis without fouling. But, but as your post pointed out, Ben, um, some of those fouls in the tournament were being overly aggressive 40 feet from the basket. So, so, you know, I think he is improving in terms of, rim defense without fouling but yeah the big picture that's that's definitely an area he needs to figure out yeah and he's improved the little tiny bits but this is it's all you can ask for from a guy like this he's improved his balls at least appears to have improved his ball skills from non-existent to limited right (laughs) like is and you know what Limited is great for that guy, and, and we, we talk about, uh, I referenced it in my post, was uh, was the Zach Lowe piece from last week about Rudy, and this was before the Spain game even happened, um, talking about the t- sort of the Tyson Chandler model for guys like this offensively, and really all it takes to be that offensively is some of that sort of spacing and knowledge of, of the spatial knowledge, like I was just mentioning, and the ability to effectively set a pick, turn your footwork, run to the hoop, Catch the ball if it's thrown to you and dunk it. Like, and those sound like basic things to people, but you should try having your limbs be as long as these people and see if it's that easy. <laughs> but uh, if he's, you know, he's twenty. What is he, he's twenty two, right? My I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. If he, you know, the and the again the development he's appearing to just things like catching the ball. I know, and I I've noted uh, I put a couple of video examples in my piece. He's improving on that, and it sounds simple to us, but that's a that's a big deal for a guy like that because if he can even be two thirds of a Tyson Chandler on offense, that we're seeing what he can potentially do defensively. Yeah, agreed. There was a there was a game early last season where. Um, where he scored, I, I had logged the plays for whatever random reason, and he played 19 minutes in, in some early game against a decent opponent, and in those 19 minutes, the other team did not score in the paint at all. 
zero points in the paint in 19 minutes. Hmm. So that's the type of defensive impact. And, and by the way, that was an even rawer version of Rudy Gobert that had you know even less of an idea how to play within the team concept. So when you start to unleash that type of defensive influence um, across you know 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And you and you get him to understand what the team is trying to do. I, I think there are good things ahead for Gobert. And and I mean, you know, he's going to play some minutes this year. Oh yeah. If you look at how the roster is constructed, there's no way you can really fill out that rotation without penciling him in for you know at least more than the 500 minutes he played last year. That, uh, that's kind of my question: is as how much of an impact can he have on the team next season? I, I in particular, I don't see him and Favors being able to play together very well. Uh, I, I think I think they'll either prove us wrong or else this will be a long year because I, I don't see him necessarily taking minutes from favors. So if he's going to play more than you know 15 or 20 a night, he's probably going to be taking minutes from Ennis Cantor, you know, and and that means that favors has to be able to hit 18 footers. <laughs> That's just something we haven't seen from him yet. So um, totally valid question, Andy. But for but for Rudy to play more than what has for the last couple of years been the Ennis Cantor role, you know, 15 to 20 minutes off the bench, um, I, I think some of that, some of that's going to have to be with with Fave. I'm I'm really intrigued to see where this goes, and I feel like Rudy's performance this summer has kind of thrown this particular issue into a little bit sharper of focus, and maybe not sharper of focus, but it's maybe sped up the timeline just a little bit on it and this is a I was having this conversation last night on Twitter with a few people um, about you know, somebody who was it? I think it was Talking Practice. Those of you who know uh, Talking Practice on, on Twitter, a really good follow, first off, um, who, who at first uh, tweeted at me saying, so are, 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 the question was, so are you guys ready to punt on Cantor yet? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I then, my answer was no. And the reasons why are, I'm, I'm now intrigued by this possibility going forward of something of a goofy, really goofy three-headed monster as far as the big rotation goes for the Jazz. Now, it's really hard to say whether this is something they're going to be able to make work salary-wise going forward, and especially given that, as we've discussed in, in previous weeks on the podcast, it looks as though Cantor, especially this summer, is going to be asking for a number that the Jazz likely aren't going to be able to give. And who knows... I think it's very likely at this point that he that the Jazz don't extend him before the beginning of next season, and he goes to restricted free agency. And who knows how that goes, depending on what kind of year he has this year. Who knows what? Oh, team he'll is. be restricted. Yeah, I, I, I think there's I almost would bet a question. My- yeah, I'd, I'd bet my shirt on it. Yeah, yeah, and we all know Dan wears really nice shirts. So that uh, <laughs> and uh, with that in mind, I'm just thinking that you know. We, obviously, of course, you say uh, a front, a future front line of Gobert and Favors, and you think of them as: the, the, is the spacing going to be there? Is it is there going to be at all? And Favors has shown just the tiniest glimpses of having the mid range game improving in the last couple of years. But whether he's going to be able to do that on a like as you say, Dan, where he can actually make eighteen footers, really hard to say. Do you guys? think that if again if the numbers were right that going forward for the future not even just this year go baron canter yeah uh, well and not even just that and, and i'm not even saying you'd have to make some kind of a deal to get rid of favors where you brought in extra value coming back or something like that what is it impossible to think about ro- employing a rotation of all three of those guys where you can kind of play to each of their strengths and where, you know, if you're having a lineup that's really lacking shooting, you can bring in Cantor and put him with one of those other two? Or if, you know, let's say Rodney Hood develops really well as the shooter that we think he's going to be and Alec Burks keeps shooting well and Trey Burke gets a little bit, gets to where we thought he was going to be as a shooter, you can put those three guys out on the, or a Hayward out on the court. And then have a favors and Gobert where they do more Spurs type stuff where they get in the horn sets, lots of flex action where you're getting your shooters open and maybe you can cover up the fact that neither of those guys is a shooter much. Is that a long-term plan that could potentially work for the Jazz is what I'm wondering you guys think? Well, well, I mean, I guess not. I, this is going to sound like I'm avoiding your question, <laughs> mostly because I'm, I'm about to avoid your question. I mean, we just... We just named like nine guys there, right? Um, and, and, and by the way, we left Exum off the list, who's obviously a part of the, you know, in an ideal world, will be part of the future contending jazz yeah, plan. Yeah, true. Um, so I think for me, it comes back to 
um, it comes back to, you know, there's only so much money, there's only so much minutes, there's only one basketball. Um, I think, I think without getting into whether I believe that Cantor's the guy or Gobert's the guy or Favors is the guy, I, I think that what we're talking about is what I've been saying now for a, over a year, which is that the, the Jazz have some tough decisions on the horizon. Yep. And I don't, and I don't know yet how they're going to answer them. I have my preferences, and I have my thoughts, and I have my theories. What's your preference? I want to hear. I want to hear what your preference would be. Well, I, I mean, like you know, it was cute when we used to say core four, but then the Jazz kept drafting high, and so now we're up to like core nine. <laughs> and the reality is, you can't like the de- by definition, the core of something can't be the whole thing, right? So yeah. at some point, you need to figure out like okay, who are the three to four future stars that are going to make us relevant in 2017 and 2018 and 2019 and beyond? And um, and I think that list is going to look a lot smaller. And to be frank, yeah, I don't know. I, I, there are guys that we've just named that I'm not sure are going to be on that list. There are guys like that that I don't think have, you know, future all-star or top three guy on a title contender um, in in my crystal ball, um, but th- but that's where I'd go back to. I think I think what we're describing, I don't think all of these nine or ten guys we're talking about are going to be on the Jazz's roster when they're making trips into the Western Conference Finals. I think at some point some decisions are going to be made, and that point has got to be approaching fast because at at some point those assets start losing value if if all they ever do is watch other guys play. So sometime in the next, I don't know when it's going to be, I expected more of it to happen this summer, honestly. I thought, especially going into the draft, I thought this was going to be the year that they were going to make some gutsy moves relative to Ennis Cantor or relative to Alec Burks or relative maybe even to Trey Burke. At some point, they got to decide who their guys are. Summer ain't over yet, first of all. Yeah, but I... I don't know if they're making a trade like that. Well, okay, so uh, so Dan, no, 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 you go ahead, Andy. Sorry, I I just want to. We're running out of time almost. Dan, is there anything else that you want to add? Uh, decision time's coming, <laughs> and it's and it's and hey, to Rudy's credit and everyone else's credit, there are some guys that are going to make that decision time really, really interesting. He's done that so far, I think, unquestionably. Yep, yep. there's there's no doubt, and you know that's that's coming up. And we'll we'll cover it. I'm excited. All Dan, right. thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, uh, guys. thanks again for a great article. You can check out Dan's article on saltcityhoops.com. The FIBA scouting reports on Rudy Gobert, Dante Exum, Raonetto, and Ante Tomic. We had Dan on, I think, for longer than any other guest we've had on for a half hour. So yeah. thanks, Dan, for joining us. I like having the the guests on for a long period of time, especially Dan. We always have fun conversations with Dan. Yeah. Um. So, but that being said, we are almost out of time on the show. So sorry, I cut off your oh, question no, no, there. That's, I just that's fine. almost out of the time here we have in the beautiful ESPN 700 studios. So I want to get into the crazy trade idea of the week just for a couple minutes here. And in particular, it, this is actually one of these trades that we were talking about where, you know, maybe we need to consolidate these core pieces, quote unquote, and, and put it together into something that maybe has more star power. So the crazy trade idea, and it is a little bit crazy is the newly loved Rudy Gobert and Dante Exum for Jabari Parker. Interesting. See, like, had this trade been proposed to you before June, you absolutely do it, right? Oh, you move up second. from the number five pick to the number two pick. You can do, you know, you probably do end up taking Jabari Parker. Maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe you take him beat at that spot if you want. But I, I think a large majority of Jazz fans do that deal, the, the number five or the number two. Um, plus Rudy Gobert. But now, all of a sudden, we add in how Rudy Gobert is played. Um, we add in that maybe, you know, the, the Jazz were able to get Dante Exum at number five rather than number four. And all of a sudden, it becomes a more difficult question. So first of all, Ben, would you do this deal? Um, well, that, I was actually going to clarify with you. Is the is the pick, we know that it's just the fifth pick at the time? Or no, no, no. Or we it's, know that it's Exum? It's, yeah, we know it's Exum. We know it's it's those players as is now. Okay, yeah. Um. I think we may have actually just arrived at one of our first... Because usually when we do our our crazy trade of the week, since we're allowed to be crazy with it and since we're jazz homers, I think we generally make deals that are more 
the more on the end of like, well, the other team probably wouldn't take that, but the Jazz probably would. At least I think that's the majority of our trades that we've done. I think we may okay. have arrived at one of the first ones that might be a little bit of the other way around. I'm not sure at this point that I would do that deal. But you think Milwaukee would? Ah, man, I don't know. Like, I guess it totally depends on how exactly how highly they were valuing Jabari. We heard going into the draft that they would have taken him first if they had the first pick um, and that they were really high on him. And if that's the case, maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they would be like, you know, Gobert played one game, one good game and <laughs> yeah. XM has played zero. So we're, you know, so we're, we don't want, we have looked, we look at Jabari and we see him as the cornerstone going forward. And we're not sure either of those other guys are that. And we're going to, you know, we're not going to do it. Um, I think that's a really interesting question whether the Jazz would or not. I think if you ask Jazz fans as a whole right now, given the way that we are as Jazz fans, they would say, no, no way. Look how Rudy's playing. He's better than Jabari Parker right now, which is, of course, ludicrous. But, like, I, th- you know, yeah, I don't know if I'd do it. Teams have a, have a tendency to overvalue their own assets, that and definitely always. fans do as well. Yeah, and we're, we're as guilty as any. Ja- I think Jazz Nation as a whole is maybe even more guilty of that than, they, <laughs> than your average fan base, which isn't a bad thing. We show our loyalty. Um Boy, that is a really, really tough one because if Exum hits his ceiling and if Gobert continue or even comes close and Gobert continues the 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 trajectory that he's had, you could easily see that be the Jazz sending the better end of value in that deal. You because you, Gobert could we could be looking at Gobert as a thirty minute a night center if he can continue the little bits of offensive stuff that we've seen and bulk up just a little bit. And neither of those things is unrealistic at all. And Exum's got the ceiling of you know the the a uh, really tall building so <laughs> uh and you know and you never know jabari might not be awesome jabari might be just a heavier carmelo who doesn't do any of the tangential things that carmelo does quite as well as carmelo does them and he might just kind of be a talented scorer as whole well. might just be rudy gay yeah i like, i think it's i think it's a reasonable question like uh, at a certain point the jazz are gonna have to make these sort of consolidation trades uh, if they want to keep the value of these core pieces you know uh, it, you can either let NS Cantor go in free agency, or you can include him in a trade package for something else. Um, and or ditto, you can resign him. Or yeah, you can resign him, but uh, uh, you know, eventually you run out of yeah. room to resign all these people, um, and you'll have to make a trade with one of these guys, right? Yeah. So um, I, I just think that eventually this is the sort of trade that the Jazz will have to make, and it'll have to be very difficult. But you'll have to make these sort of consolidation decisions. I think it's an interesting one. Jazz fans, hit us up on Twitter and let us know what you think about that crazy I'm, yeah, trade. I'm interested to hear um, the general thoughts of Jazz Nation on that's this one. Rudy Gobert plus Dante Exum for Jabari Parker. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. I look forward to that feedback on Twitter. Of course, you can read all of our articles on saltcityhoops.com and listen to our podcast every week on Salt City Hoops. Um, our content's also showing up on ESPN700.com, so check that out as give well. Them, give them the Twitter handle so they know where to get us. Yes, um, I'm at Andy B. Larson. You are at Ben underscore Dowsett. The ESPN one is at ESPN700sports. Uh, oh, sorry, and the, the... Sorry, the Twitter handle is at ESPN700. The website is ESPN700sports.com. Wanted to make sure that's correct. Um, did I cover it? I think I covered yeah, it. I think you got them. <laughs> cool. Okay. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week.